Let's bow once again in prayer before we look into God's Word together. Our God, we thank you again for, for this precious time that we've just observed together here in these last few minutes in communion as we have, um, as we have eaten together, drank together, had this meal together, reminding us of the salvation that has been earned for us on the cross through the atoning work of Christ. By faith, we have received, we have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And this celebration makes us long for heaven, makes us long for our glorification when we can enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb in your presence. But Father, we realize that this is not yet the fullness of time. We remain here. As much as we enjoy our communion and our fellowship with one another in the church, Lord, we also admit this morning that we are in constant need of your help and your power in order to live in this world. Our struggle comes from the world, but it also comes from our sin and the passions and desires that always threaten to trip us up. And so we now turn to you we turn to your word to, to guide us, to lead us into all truth. Help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I encourage you to take your Bibles again and turn to Peter's first letter and chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. We're, we're just, Lord willing, going to cover two verses today. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. But I want to start by reading back at verse 9, just to get our bearings a little bit. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and they may glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's holy word. Well, I read those first two verses because we've come to a place in 1 Peter where we get to a bit of a transition here between verses 10 and 11. Up to verse 10, Peter has been reminding the recipients of the letter, those that were listed way back in very first verse of this letter, he's been reminding these Christians that even though they have been dispersed into what is really, or what was really then, the back country of the Roman Empire, even though they're facing mounting persecution, even though they're facing increased suffering for their faith in Christ, Peter is reminding them, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that they are secure, that they are ultimately safe because they are together and they are in Christ. So lots of persecution, lots of things coming against them. They might be getting worried a little bit. What's going on? What have I gotten myself into? 
But Peter is reassuring them that they're okay. They're together with each other. They're in Christ. And so that section culminated there with verses 9 and 10, those great verses that start with, you are, all those amazing, rich and rich categories that are listed there in verses 9 and 10. And then we have a shift with those words in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, and then he goes on, and he's going to go on um, through the entire middle section of this letter, right through to chapter 4, verse 11. And if you look at, ahead to that, chapter 4, verse 11 ends with an amen. It's not the end of the letter. He keeps on going after that. But it ends with an amen, and verse 12 starts with another beloved. So this forms one section here between chapter 2, verse 11, and chapter 4, verse 11. And he's talking here in this middle section about how to live as the people of God in a time of hostility toward the people of God. So how do you live as God's people when there is a mass widespread hostility against Christians and against the whole concept of Christianity? And so this is going to be helpful for us too, living here in this time and in this culture where our attack is not yet coming through physical persecution, but through a campaign that's being fueled and fomented mostly through communication, mostly through the media. And they have admittedly actually done a very amazing job of taking minority opinion and making it sound like it's majority opinion. But what it really amounts to is an all-out, yet very slow and subtle uh, overturning and upending of God's law and of God's word. So the question that we are left with is how do we as Christians, how do we as a church live in times like this? What is our role as Christians in times like this? What is our mindset to be? What is our attitude to be? What is our posture to be? Well, verses 11 and 12 introduce this section. They're sort of the main doors that are going to get us into this topic. And then there are hallways that lead to smaller rooms in this big room that has to do with how we react to a hostile world as Christians. What, he's going to go on to tell us after this, like, what do we do with secular governments? How do we react to that? How do we respond to employers that are unbelievers? And even to non-Christian spouses. If we haven't been married in the Lord, or if we've become a Christian but our spouse hasn't, how do, hasn't, how do we respond to that? So those are all sort of subsections, and this here today we're going to be looking at is introduction. In verses 11 and 12, God, through Peter, gives us two general and very practical principles on how Christians can live in a world like this and yet make Christianity attractive. And he says it works its way from the inside out. We have to take care of what's going on both privately in our thoughts and in our priorities, verse 11, and then publicly, outside, in our behavior, in our conduct. For us who are Christians, we feel pressure. There is pressure being exerted on us from inside and from outside. I remember a commercial a little while back. I think it was promoting some sort of uh, uh, a back pain relief pill. 
And they showed us sort of a 3D graphic of a human figure with these arrows sort of flashing and expanding to show where the pain was on that person's back and to show that that pain is just pressing in on the nerves in those areas. Being a Christian can or should be like that. We have pressure that's coming at us from two directions. It's coming at us from the world on the outside, and, it, and it's coming at us from the inside as well, through our own remaining sin, through the flesh. And Peter's addressing both those things in these two verses, and he's telling us how to deal with them in a godly way. But if we handle those pressures in a godly way, we could have some arrows that come out from us because they would produce in us beautiful and honorable conduct, which in turn could lead unbelievers as they observe our conduct to glorify God, which is an amazing byproduct of us if we just deal with how we ought to live as believers in this world. That's where these verses are heading. God wants us to live in this world in such a way that, number one, we are not at home in this world, but number two, that we relate to the world so as to commend and to adorn the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's start at verse 11. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you. And so he's just reminded them of their standing, how they've been called out of darkness and into the light, how they are a people for God's own possession, how they are a chosen race, how they are a royal priesthood, how they are chosen and precious. Going even further back to chapter 1, they have an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading. They have a fire-tested faith. Going to the end of chapter 1, they have an inexpressible joy. They have been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. This is who we are through the grace of our Lord and the love of Christ. We are beloved We are God's beloved people, in God's sight, loved by Him. They are also, though, at the same time, notice, sojourners and exiles. So, in the sight of God, we're beloved. This is how we relate to the world. This is already the third time we're still barely into this letter that Peter describes them like this. See it back in chapter 1, verse 1, and verse one, chapter 1, verse 17. So we've got these dual and sometimes conflicting realities. We are loved by God, and we belong to Him as His children, praise God, and that gives us the strength that we need to live in this world. This seems to us, if we just look at that as a place of security, and it is, but yet we also live in this world, a place that many times seems to us to be unsafe, and it is. But it's with those two realities in mind that Peter urges us, encourages us, with two instructions. The first there is in verse 11, to abstain, abstain from the passions of the flesh. So Peter's thinking here about what's happening in the inside. What's going on in here? This is our inner life. This is what's happening in our hearts. And what's happening inside is that there are these passions of the flesh. And these passions of the flesh are waging war against your soul. 
There's an inner battle. There's an inner war that's being waged all the time for your soul. The stakes are huge. Have you ever thought about it that way? This is a very real war. And it has serious repercussions. There's something coming for your soul. Coming for your whole being. That's what the soul is. For, for that part of your being that's eternal. Your soul. And it's a sustained military action. And the enemy, the military aggressor, is these passions of the flesh. So we've got to figure out what Peter means by those. What are these passions of the flesh? What's the nature of this military campaign that's going on inside your soul? And why is this even happening? Well, it's happening because even though we are redeemed, even though we are saved if we are believers, we are not yet finally saved. We are not yet glorified. We are still here in these bodies. And the way Peter likes to say that is that we are still in the flesh. The flesh represents our weakness. It represents our weakness while we still yet live in this body. And the flesh has passions. It has desires. It has lusts. These have been defined as the unbridled or the unrestrained impulses in the human heart. The unrestrained impulses and unbridled impulses in humans. Sometimes in the New Testament, these passions have to do with sexually immoral kinds of things, but here it's more comprehensive. It's describing all kinds of desires. It's describing all the passions that are connected with our life, we might say, before Christ. Or if you can't remember your life before Christ, it's describing the kinds of passions that someone might have without Christ. Back in chapter 1, verse 14, Peter says, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The passions of your former ignorance. Back then, our passions just controlled us. We we never gave it a second thought. But now, these passions cause conflict. They wage war on our souls, on our redeemed souls. They're constantly pressing in on us. And they're a negative influence on us. They're a negative influence on us, but influential nonetheless. Do you feel this war? The Apostle Paul did. He expressed it this way in Romans 7, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire, the passion, to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You can sense that war there, can't you? Being waged in Paul's heart. And if Paul struggled with the desires and the passions of the flesh, we all will. You likely know what some of those passions of the flesh are for you. Specifically, those desires that that just seem to mess with your conscience. Your God-shaped, now, Bible-informed conscience. But there is a representative list in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 and following, for the desires, there's that word again, or the passions of the flesh, are against the Spirit. 
So they're against this Spirit of God that now resides in you. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. So there's a list of sexual sins, but it's not limited to that. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, just arguing with each other, jealousy, fits of anger. Anyone relate to that? Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So it's not even an exhaustive list. There's all kinds of passions of the flesh that wage war against our soul. And you know what they are for you. I know what they are for me. Some of them I don't know yet. Still other things rising to the surface all the time. So here's the thing. Even though we are beloved, even though we have been saved, gloriously saved, saved, and even though our conversion gives us a new desire, a new longing for good things and godly things, there is an ongoing battle between the spirit and the flesh. It's a relentless battle with relentless pressure. The world and its desires are always pressing in on us, tempting us, alluring us. There is an ever-present peril. They are dangerous. They're not always obvious. They can be subtle. They're deceitful. Ephesians 4.22 says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, deceitful passions. They're deceiving. So what do we do with these passions of the flesh? Kind of think of it that way. It almost seems to be a losing battle. But it is most definitely not. Peter says that as beloved believers, as sojourners and exiles, we have a renewed ability, an ability that wasn't there before in our former ignorance, to now abstain from those passions of the flesh. In other words, we have the ability to resist those passions. And that's what Peter uh, prescribes for the war against your soul. Abstain. Resist. That that word literally means keep your distance from. And there's the connection with being sojourners and exiled. Since we are not of this world, we should also then keep a distance from the passions of the flesh. It's okay to be out of it when it comes to the passions of the flesh. Don't try to be relevant in this area. Abstain. Keep a distance from those things. And we also see here that we need to be vigilant about that. This is the resistance force that combats the forces of the flesh that wage war against our souls. We have to discern when we're we're getting too tethered to the world. And then call on God to help us to abstain and to resist those passions. And let's just make sure we say say that we need the Lord's strength to do this. And we need each other in the church for this. We can't do this on our own. But the good news is that when we are saved, when we were saved, we gained the power of resistance. Resistance is possible. If you have failed, if 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 there are times when your passions have gotten the best of you, Just remember that repentance is available by always repenting. We always need to have that sort of mindset that we're always 
coming to the Lord and asking Him to forgive us. And grace and forgiveness is plentiful. The godly life is a life of resistance against the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. The godly life is a life of resistance against the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. So that's what's going on inside of us. We're called to keep a distance as exiles and sojourners from our worldly desires, from from those desires of the flesh. There's a compliment that I'm seeing written about more often these days, and it goes like this. You might have seen it. People want to make someone feel better about themselves, or people post something on social media, and someone will comment, you are beautiful inside and out. You ever seen that? Have you ever written that? Said that about someone? It's a very nice thing to say. Now, I think I know what they mean when they say that. It's a compliment about their whole person. There's an inner and outer beauty about that person that is being commended. But sometimes when I read that, I think, do they really know what's going on in the inside? We can't see the struggle that other people have with the passions of the flesh. But we can observe what comes out. We can observe someone's behavior or conduct. And that's where Peter goes next. It says there in verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see, they may observe your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That word for honorable there can also be translated as beautiful or good or excellent. The godly life involves both resistance and excellence. And the one flows out from the other. If we, if we walk in the Spirit, in the, in, in the words again of Galatians 5, and if we keep those passions of the flesh at a distance, it will produce excellence in our conduct as we live among the Gentiles, among the unbelievers, among those who, with whom we rub shoulders every day, among those with whom we might even, who might even speak against us, saying that we are evildoers of all things. So there are two kinds of pressures coming against us. There's the pressure of our own flesh, and there's the pressure of what unbelievers are saying about us. Now, this is not always the case on an individual level. You may not always hear people talk like that about you to your face. But it is starting to happen generally in the way that people talk about Christians collectively. Christians are increasingly being labeled with words like unfeeling or narrow, fundamentalist, non-welcoming, non-affirming. Sort of general categories that are being thrown around of people who believe that the Bible is literally true. People that hold to the authority of the word. Sometimes we're even referred to as haters or racists or bigots. And sadly, some have made a bad name for Christians and that is true. Some people. But now it's being, we're all being lumped into the same sort of category, especially when it comes to the social issues of the day. Even as we conduct ourselves rightly and try to be 
do-gooders, people may speak against us as evildoers. We try to do good, they speak against us as doing evil. But Peter encourages us to strive to keep our conduct excellent among the unbelieving world. He says, just keep being winsome. Keep being kind. Keep being gracious. Keep being noble. Let let that be what people see and observe from you and, and from us collectively as a church. The world might be saying things about you. But here it doesn't tell us to debate them. It doesn't tell us to get into a verbal joust. It doesn't tell us to argue with them, to try to convince them. Now, sometimes that might be necessary, and, and God has, through His Spirit, has particularly gifted some people to, to, to live in that world, to be able to debate and to argue and to convince. So it is necessary, but this says that as they speak, you make sure you keep your conduct honorable. You make sure that you keep your conduct honorable. You don't need to rebut their accusations with your words. We ought to speak, but back in verse 9, our speaking, there it says, is only to proclaim God's excellencies. So, So speaking good things about the one who has saved you. That's our proclamation. So keep talking about God's amazing work in your life and that he's called you out of darkness, that he's brought you into his marvelous light. That's what we ought to proclaim. That's our proclamation. But keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, winsome, kind, patient, generous, all those virtues that display the fact that God has, in fact, called you out of the world and into his light. And notice the surprising result then when we give ourselves to that task of good conduct and good deeds. As you're just living your life, conducting yourself with excellence, and as they're talking about Christians as being evildoers, recognize that they're also watching you and observing you. In essence, they speak one thing to you, but they see another thing. God, in his wisdom, is working all of that together for this result. As they watch you, it might just be that all of that honorable conduct And all of that excellent character, all of those good deeds is being observed. And as it's being observed, might lead unbelievers to glorify God on the day of visitation. Meaning at the end of all things. Wouldn't that be a surprising and glorious turn of events? You may not even see that result now. But on that day, in heaven you may very well hear from someone that was maligning you and speaking evil about you, and they might say that they were watching you. And it was your good conduct that was one of the things that began to make them take notice. And it was your good conduct that adorned the gospel and eventually brought them to the point that they were able to hear the gospel and to repent and to believe in the gospel and by doing so to glorify God. It was your good conduct that God used in part to call them out of darkness, to call them into his marvelous light. Jesus said something very similar, didn't he? Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others. So what? So that they might see your good works and that they might glorify, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That would be the absolute best outcome, wouldn't it? As unbelievers, 
maybe even those in your own close, uh, close circle, your, your family, your co-workers, your friends, your, your neighbors. As unbelievers, see you say no to the desires of the flesh. As they notice that you deny yourself, that you don't pursue the de- desire for money or for success or immorality. As they see your excellent conduct and your good works, they may just take notice. And they may start to think to themselves that, that this God you claim to serve, that this Christ that you claim has died for you, that this God and this Jesus might just be real. They can produce such a change in your life. There's got to be something to this. It's producing an uncommon kind of excellence and goodness. An uncommon kind of excellence and goodness. And then God begins to do a work in their lives and bring them to the point that on that last day, they are found there to be glorifying God. So this is the exile's life. This is the godly life that you should and can pursue by the grace of God. It's recognizing that you still have these desires of the flesh, but also that you have now been enabled to resist those desires, to resist those passions, and not not to allow them to destroy your soul. The exile's life is a life of resistance, and it's a life of excellence, where we strive to be beautiful on the outside, in our conduct and in our good deeds, as we live every day among unbelievers. God, we thank you for giving us this much-needed guidance. Father, as sojourners in this world, sometimes we do feel aimless and forlorn. We feel like we don't fit. We're, we're, we're feeling the pressures from within and the pressures from the outside. And so, Father, we thank you for making it possible for us to abstain from the passions of the flesh from those things that are waging war on our souls. Help us to remember Jesus' words when he said, What shall a profit someone if he or she gains the whole world and yet loses their soul? Lord, help us to resist those desires by the power of the Holy Spirit, looking always to the example of Christ. And then I pray that you would help us to be mindful of our conduct, of our behavior. Remind us that unbelievers among, among us and around us are indeed observing us, even as they revile us. Help us not to become defensive, but to keep striving towards excellence in our attitudes and in our works. Help us not to bring disrepute to the gospel, but to adorn the gospel. And Father, I pray that as we would do that, that you would use even our mere and imperfect efforts to cause people to hear the gospel and to repent and to believe in the gospel. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. Go in peace.